Alright everybody, welcome back to the Exploring the Blockchain podcast, where we document our experiences of learning about the blockchain, interview guests and experts in the space, and keep you updated with the latest trends in the industry. I'm your co-host Zane. And I'm Josh. Today we're joined by James Healy, President of Digital Disbursements, founder of JFH Capital, and creator of the first comprehensive fintech course at a major university. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what brought you into Web3? Yeah, th- thanks for having me. Um, and I'll start with the caveat of these thoughts are my own, not my employer, not the university, all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, been in fintech, you know, for ten plus years. After business school, I joined GE Capital, and that's where I first kind of got exposed to fintech. Um, really enjoyed it, and that was kind of the catalyst for teaching at Marshall. So I've been teaching there probably probably for the last seven years, both the MBA level and, and undergrad. And it started by really just exposing the students to different business models. So lending, payments, equity raises, you know, alternative debt, all these different avenues. Um, And originally it was FinTech, it was the SoFi's of the world, the PayPal's of the world, and those FinTech companies that were the disruptors. Now as it's evolved, you know, it's it's much been more, much more focused the last few years on, on blockchain generally and crypto also as well as a component of that. And that's kind of been the evolution that that's brought me from, you know, my background of on a quote unquote traditional fintech to now the you know the cutting edge you know Web three crypto and blockchain universe. Cool. Um, so the question I'll I'll kind of lead here with uh, since you mentioned you know things like PayPal um, and SoFi is what do you think about you know blockchain payments and cryptocurrencies in the sense that you know you have these things like paypal and venmo where i can pay someone for free uh, a lot of the big reasons people say cryptocurrency is the future because of like trustless payments but do you think that is even necessary you know given that it's so easy for me to transfer money with something like paypal or venmo what do you think is the future of with crypto and and how do you think about this yeah i'm bullish on on crypto generally and blockchain more specifically you know generally blockchain and i think crypto will have really interesting use cases i think those use cases will will really explode one when it's easier to use like right now to send you know to send crypto to do those types of things it's not the easy user experience as it is to use venmo so i think that's one mega thing that'll get solved in the years to come and I actually do think that the the PayPal, American Express, Visa, Mastercard will be big players in that because I think they're heavily invested in it. Um, and I think where it will really change eventually, when it gets really easy, I think it'll go there. But I think where it's going to change is when there's where there's the most friction today. So cross border payments, things like that. Like the catalyst for me to to send money to you, you know, to to your wallet versus just going on Venmo and sending you twenty bucks. The, you know, it's much easier and it's a good experience for me to Venmo you. But if I'm sending money to someone in Japan or in Europe or something along those lines, it's a much bigger friction point. So I think that that's where the catalyst will be to change. And as that drives adoption and people get used to it, and then it'll be just as easy as Venmo over time. Okay, so we kind of still need more easier solutions for people who don't know how to create a crypto wallet, you know, buy the Bitcoin through a centralized source and then send it to someone else who has a Bitcoin address. We're still waiting for the like mainstream adoption from financial institutions. I, th- I think so. I, I think I'd separate consumers versus financial institutions as well. I think the consumer experience needs to be, you know, seamless. You know, there needs to be a reason to get off of Web2 or get off of normal payments and get into the new ecosystem. 
And even when I talk to, to friends or, you know, to, to people that I know, to students, and I, I'm super excited. I'm like, you got to go do this. I'm like, okay, you set up an account here. This is how you use it. You know, take a left, take a right. And then you can send a, you know, a crypto payment. And it's just a lot for just, uh, you know, the average person that doesn't have the passion for it to go through today. What do you think it'll take for this mainstream adoption? Uh, do you think it's going to be regulators in the space? Do you think it's going to be more innovation, trying to you know minimize friction? And one of the things that I also asked other people in previous podcasts was, do we even want blockchain to be this mainstream thing that everyone uses? Or should it just be for people who are really interested in the space, people who actually have a deep understanding of the technology? Because it is a complex thing and not everyone can understand it. What, is that, what does that balance look like? Yeah. So I think the catalyst, um, I think it's going to take a while to actually get like real mainstream adoption where you're using it, the average person is using it day to day versus using whatever current form it is. Um, and I think the big catalyst typically is economic from my perspective. So a reason for people to go is, again, you're sending MoneyGram and it's costing 8% or 10% to send money internationally. Like that's, you know, that's a real catalyst to change. Um, and I think other places, when you look at, you know, some countries that don't have the same infrastructure as the U.S. or developed nations, they can kind of hopscotch and not have to, you know, do a big system flip to where we are today, which is similar to kind of how cell phones, you know, other places skip landlines and went right to mobile in Africa um, and other geographies just because they didn't have the existing legacy infrastructure to try to move. Um, but, but I think... I think it's going to take years, and I do think that user experience has to be really seamless. Because why, why change if it's not seamless? So I think for, if I look at the path, I think where there's friction point, an economic friction point, like cross-border payments, that gives people an economic reason to go after it and actually make it a better user experience. And I think as the infrastructure develops around that, then they'll then they'll expand and go to different areas where the economics might not be as attractive or as big of a friction point, but they've solved the problem, they've got the good user experience, they've created the, you know, the rails that they need, and then they expand off of that to hit, you know, more kind of an, an easy consumer experience, which then creates mass adoption. And you, you see people, you know, striking others that are trying to use a lightning network and do those types of things. You know, I think those are interesting, like, use cases, and any one of those could be a huge kind of, like, flip to the system. You just don't know which one's going to be the one that, that blows it out or or which ones just like linger and wait for the right use case. One thing I also think is worth mentioning is that countries like El Salvador and these more emerging nations are the ones who are like the first ones like really adopting Bitcoin as it has, it's more stable in general um, than maybe their native currency. Um, do you see maybe a lot of growth in these emerging economies that are starting to use Bitcoin might um, start to use cryptocurrency? I think, you know, so, so it is interesting. I think when you look at it in terms of like El Salvador and what they're buying, I think it's interesting for them. Um, it's not totally apparent to me that that's going to move the needle. You know, I think it'll really like institutional capital from developed countries. They'll be the ones that, that basically make it less volatile because they'll put enough capital to work where it, it takes, it'd be hard to move the needle. You know, El Salvador, when they buy another $300 million of Bitcoin, you know, it's not going to stabilize the system or really like move the needle. Um, so I think it's interesting, but I don't know that's the catalyst. I, I think once things settle, once there's more, you know, op options and like functional 
opportunities, whether it's on Bitcoin. I'm, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist either. I actually do do like Bitcoin, but really kind of when I think about like smart contracts and I think of, you know, Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, you know, other ecosystems, I think that's where more value would go to because I think it's more functional. And to me, I buy the digital gold story of Bitcoin. And I think that as people build, you know, on Lightning Network and these other things, it becomes more meaningful. But I actually think the, if I had, if you had to say like, hey, would you rather have Bitcoin or Ethereum? I would actually, you know, be on the Ethereum chain. Because I think that the smart contract technology and where that will go over time will be much more valuable than, you know, just kind of a straight payment rails that's more limited. Can you talk a little bit about um, equity and fundraising um, in this new blockchain environment? You know, we've seen things like ICOs. We've seen new methods of fundraising. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how companies can utilize this new technology as like a new means of capital formation. Yeah, I think that's where, you know, you touched on regulation, you know, a little bit. Um, I think that's going to be really interesting as you see the evolution with DAOs and where that goes. You know, you had IPOs pop and then plummet. You've had DAOs really emerge. And I think as the U.S. comes out, and I'm speaking more so U.S. right now than I am globally, um, but I think that's where the regulation will really have an impact because now it's there's still so much uncertainty. There's still so many questions. You see A16Z come out with opinions that they think one thing. You know, then a month later, Janet Yellen's talking about another thing. Um so I think that actually is something really important before really mainstream, you know, adoption of fundraising can happen. That's kind of more crypto focused, in my opinion. I think it's going to be traditional, you know, kind of like equity. I think DAOs are an interesting use case, but it's still complicated. So I think there we actually do really need comprehensive regulation in the U.S. that lays the groundwork for people to know where to go. And that's where we'll see how do these different things evolve in terms of what's the best format, what's the best structure. It'll move quickly once it's there, but still, when I talk to 10 people, I get 10 different answers. Um, so it's really hard to tell how to raise effectively in the US in a crypto format today. And I, I think that that's gonna continue until we get more clarity. So you think uh, people you know, not necessarily knowing the laws, what's legal or not, is kind of hindering this. Do you think that's also stopping financial institutions and governments in really like diving deep into things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? I think the regulations and impact, it feels like Bitcoin, you know, when you look at Gary Gensler and some of the stuff, you know, he says Bitcoin's not a security, you know, that's the one that he can identify as not a security. So, so there, I think it's a little bit less cause that's feels like an agreed upon, you know, concept that that's decentralized, not a security. Um, I think Ethereum still feels pretty comfortable where it is today, although he, you know, he didn't come out and say that. Um, and for people that don't know, Gary Gensler is the, you know, the head of the SEC in the U.S., which regulates securities. Um, so I, I think it's really, you know, just adoption, growth, volatility. You know, spoken with some endowments and other people that look at it, but it's still pretty early. And it's also, if you're, you know, institutional capital, I think people will continue to put money to work. But as you've looked at just how high it skyrocketed over the coming years, I think it's peaked interest. I think in 2017, you know, interest was peaked with a big jump and then the crash. I think a lot of interest was peaked recently. Um, and it's dropped partly because, you know, specifics to crypto, partly just overall macroeconomic condition. You know, it's obviously correlated to, at least today, it seems to be fully correlated to, uh, you know, the equities, when you look at NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 
goes down 2%, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the alts follow Bitcoin goes down more than that when it goes up, you know, goes up more than that. Um, but I, I don't know that people are waiting for regulation on, on Bitcoin specifically. I think that's more macro on how they feel about it. I think as you go down the chain, you get into altcoins and other ways people fundraise. I think their regulation does hinder people, especially institutional capital's willingness to put in. While we're talking about macroeconomics, do you have any thoughts on cryptocurrency as an inflation hedge? I think this is one of the core theses that people thought was so great about cryptocurrencies and things like Bitcoin. But as we've seen, you know, inflation is skyrocketing and crypto is falling. Um, do you think that, what do you think about crypto as an inflation hedge and does that, is that thesis still right? So conceptually, I agree with it. And obviously, I was proven wrong by, by how it's moved. So I think that uh, crypto, I would not say, I, I think Bitcoin potentially could be an inflation hedge at one, one, one point if this kind of digital gold you know, story holds up. I think, and I would, I would definitely separate crypto and other stuff from Bitcoin or things that are like Bitcoin. Um, so I think there's some things that are trying to be kind of the, its own economic system, disconnected from any political whims and, and kind of be that new digital gold. So I think eventually Bitcoin can get there, but does not seem to be anywhere near there today and does seem to be correlated to the markets. Um, I think other stuff is not trying to be that. And I think a, a lot of people, when they, when they talk about crypto or talk about blockchain, not only do they use crypto and blockchain synonymously, which you know is, is separate, they use Bitcoin for all cryptos, which also is, is much different. So I always encourage people, a co-professor of mine started a website called uh, Crypto Starter Kit, which is great for people to go and just kind of like learn a few things. Ben Gusberg, my co-professor, and I really encourage people to do exactly what you all are doing. You know, take the time, you know, even if you're not technical, and especially if you're not technical, learn a little bit, listen to some podcasts, get an understanding of the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, get the understanding, you know, blockchain is used for so many things, identity management, data management, there's, you know, all these different health health records, all these different use cases, private blockchains, permission versus permissionless, um, and start to, you know, go down the rabbit hole. And I think that educates people that you can start differentiating between these things and really understanding why Bitcoin's different than some other things and that, that, you know, kind of ecosystem and then start to kind of like pry it apart. But today I do not think it's the inflation hedge that anyone expected. Um, and again, I'm on full disclosure on the Economic Advisory Council of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Um, and these thoughts are totally my own, nothing to do with uh, the Fed or San Francisco, the Fed of San Francisco. I, I agree that it's, we've seen how it's one of the theories that people thought. And then it, with this downturn, some people like started to question that a little bit. In terms of lending and other aspects of DeFi, things that banks normally took a part of has been used uh, through cryptocurrency. Do you think DeFi and other aspects will grow? And where do you think banks play a role in this? Yeah, so I think DeFi is really exciting. Um, kind of a fintech nerd, so that, that makes sense that I would think that DeFi is really exciting. Um, but I think anywhere where there's not a lot of value being added. So in certain areas of banks, they add a ton of value and it's really important to have an expert. It's really important to have it, you know, in some, there are a lot of great use cases for having, you know, a central party in different areas. And then there's 
some instances where you def you know don't need a central port at all. It's commonplace. It's kind of a repetitive task. It's really you know straightforward in terms of what the what's trying to be accomplished. If I'm you know borrowing ten dollars to buy something, I'm putting collateral. Have a big bank underwrite that doesn't really make sense. Even today, they don't underwrite really small you know consumer loans anyway, right? It's just a FICO score. You get a credit card. It's pretty straightforward. Everyone's got a little different, you know, kind of algorithm that tells you like, yes, Zane and Josh got approved for a credit card, but James didn't. But it's a pretty blunt tool. There's not a ton, you know, that, that differentiates the products. And I think there, those are easy cases for DeFi to come in and make, you know, make a push to differentiate itself. And actually, if, if the banks aren't adding a ton of value in that specific use case, that's an area for blockchain to come in or, or DeFi to come in and disrupt. Um, so I think that's where it starts, and it's these cases there that are pretty plain, plain vanilla. DeFi can come in and replace. I do think there's areas where banks will continue to really add a lot of value that's more complicated. Um, so I think you kind of have to, you know separate where that goes, and then the whole idea of like a CBDC or you know central bank digital currency being issued directly to citizens. You know where does that play for private banks? Um, I think in the U.S. that that's very very far away. Just because of the, you know, the way the U.S. banking system works and the private banks, it'd be really interesting to see some other places that don't have the same kind of political environment, um, you know, where that plays out. But I think that that's very far off from the U.S. in my opinion to actually have the central government or the central bank issuing digital currency directly to people and really kind of like, you know, holding bank accounts for people. Um, that's a, a pretty huge leap in my perspective for timing in the U.S. So while we're on the topic of lending, uh, what do you think about how in the DeFi space we can begin to to assess collateral for people? Because in the in the in the traditional finance space, when you know if we think of a mortgage or a car loan or whatever, you know the bank can say, okay, if you don't pay this loan, at least I can seize the house or or I can do whatever. So I'm willing to offer this loan. In the DeFi world, we can't really put physical assets on chain, or at least that part of it hasn't quite been figured out yet. So do you have any thoughts on how we can assess collateral and figure out you know, who we can offer these loans to or whether we can offer these loans at all? And I think that's one of the biggest things. I mean, is you look at the, the jump in value of, of crypto and, and kind of how it skyrocketed. I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. A lot of it is people are borrowing crypto on these DeFi platforms to then go reinvest in other crypto because they're not taking it off, you know, out of that ecosystem. So it's just this like self-perpetuating, you know, jacks up the value because people are going and the people that are borrowing on these different platforms are just putting into, you know, super high yield or super risking things to yield farm and, and try to go down that path. Um, I, I think it will take, it'll take organizations and companies built around DeFi and somehow connecting to actually say, hey, yes, I will lend you and make this worth, you know, somehow connect this with the real world to get an auto loan to go down that path. I think it's going to have to look for it to work. It'll have to look like more traditional financial product than it would, you know, kind of quote, or today's DeFi products because today's DeFi products don't reach out of the crypto ecosystem. And I think that's the big bridge, exactly what you're saying. I don't know exactly what it looks like. Because it kind of feels like more, you know, centralized crypto than it would be true DeFi. But I think there's probably a bridge there before you get to, you know, DeFi, DeFi out of like off chain. As someone 
who you know thinks it's important to get educated in the crypto space what made you want to educate others about web3 and why do you think it's so important for young people and really anyone to start understanding blockchain technology i really do think it's, it's transformational technology and i think that when we look at the education system today there's a lot of opportunity to give people skill sets or knowledge of areas that are going to be explosive in the future so whether it's you know ai quantum computing clean energy i mean there's all these these huge trends that are happening and that's how the fintech class started because we wanted i have i'm the oldest of 10 children and one of my brothers was graduating college a few years back and he was going into real estate and he knew nothing about real estate fintech and i, I kind of said like Hey, you don't have to want to go into real estate fintech, but it's there's a ton going on. You're supposed to be like the cool young person, 22, coming out of college, like knowing what's happening. You know nothing about it. So then I had to put my money where my mouth is and actually offer to teach a class at a university. And, and that's how kind of the fintech class came to be at USC. Um, and I feel the same about blockchain and Web3. I think that, you know, you, you can debate what these triggers are to make it mainstream. You can debate what the timelines are. Is it a few years? Is it 10 years? And go through there. But I am fully convinced. I, I spent a lot of time really starting in 2020, and I feel like I was so late to the game, you know, starting to research crypto, blockchain, what are the use cases? And I just feel like it's going to be such a monumental impact on society. My goal is to get students exposure so then they learn. And then, you know, if there's... I think my last class was like 75 students. If 10 decide that they're going to go into, you know, Web3 and a crypto, a blockchain ecosystem, I'm super excited. If, you know, whatever, 55 of them decide, hey, this is nice, and I just know a little bit more, and they're a little bit more educated, that's great. And if 10 say, this is stupid, and I hated that professor, you know, you have that curve too, there's a normal distribution. Um, but to me, it's really just exposing people and getting people the opportunity to learn and think, okay, now I know what's happening at a basic level for the intro course. And then they tell 10 of their friends and their friends tell people and just continue to educate the community. So I think that's where, you know, this kind of snowballs into something that's meaningful, but you have to get out and, you know, have people evangelizing about how important it is, what the opportunities are, and then have companies actually deliver on, on what that looks like. Yeah, 100%. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, let's educate the public and then, you know, you can decide what you want to do with that information. But you're right, it is truly transformation of technology and, and knowledge is power. That's all the questions we have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see you on campus in August. All right, guys. See you soon. Thank you.